So let's just recap what we learnt last week uh, in chapters 1 and 2 of Esther. We learnt that the book of Esther is about how God uses a Jewish orphan, Esther, and her cousin Mordecai in the context of exile. When the Persian king Xerxes rids himself of his queen, Queen Vashti, in a rash and very stupid decision, God uses this to appoint Esther, the vulnerable Jewish orphan, as queen. And we continue to ask the question this week, what does God's providential care look like? He's working behind the scenes in our lives and world events, as it were, when life and events can scream that he doesn't love us and he's not in control. So to our first heading, Mordecai the Defiant, in verse 1 of chapter 3, starts with this phrase, after these events. What events? Well, after Mordecai the Jew, at the end of chapter 2, in his role as magistrate, uh, saved the king from an assassination attempt, that's King Xerxes, and he's consequently mentioned in dispatches, as it were, in verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, having done that, you'd think he would be rewarded in some way, uh, appointed as ambassador to the United States, that junket that retired Australian politicians seem to get. But the very opposite seems to happen. As Haman the Agagite, it's not something you want to repeat ten times when you first get up, is it? Haman the Agagite is promoted and is effectively second in command only to the king. Now, we're not told how Mordecai feels about this after saving the king. If you've been looked over a job or sports team for a reason other than your ability, I guess you have some feel. But then in verse 2, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, the Agagite, as commanded by the king. But Mordecai refuses, verse 2. Why? Why does Mordecai refuse to bow down to Haman? After all, he probably had to bow down to King Xerxes, and it's just an act of of honour. It doesn't necessarily follow that he follows Xerxes' gods. Is it just sour grapes that he, Mordecai, didn't get Haman's job? So what is this refusal of Mordecai all about? His refusal is for a far more complex reason, and to understand why, we need to delve further back in the Old Testament to understand because Haman the Agagite belongs to an ancient tribe known as the Amalekites or Canaanites sometimes in some versions. And they are mentioned in the book of Exodus, even longer further back in Esther than Esther. And we read in Exodus 17 when that long vulnerable train of men and women and children are fleeing Pharaoh, remember Exodus, and they're on their way to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments the Israelites were relentlessly pursued and attacked by the Amalekites. And this angers God, and he declares he will go to war with the Amalekites. Many years later, when King Saul comes to power, that's Israel's first king, he is ordered to destroy the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. And he doesn't. He's more interested in their loot. Now, King Saul belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, there's 12 tribes of Israel, one of which is Benjamin. Who else is a Benjamite in the book of Esther? Well, in chapter 2, verse 5, we're told that Mordecai is. I'm having you with me, it's a bit complex. So Saul is a forefather of Mordecai. He belongs to the same tribe of Benjamin. So come forward to the time of Esther, and as a consequence of Saul's disobedience in failing to deal with the Amalekites, 
you have this Amalekite ruling over a Jew. Now, before we try to gauge more of Mordecai's motivation, I just want to make an important digression as to Saul's disobedience. That just like Saul, there can be consequences when we disobey the commands of God. We see it in the society at large, don't we? Saul disobeyed God in not destroying the Amalekites. It then becomes a problem downstream to God's people in the time of Esther. It's not that God can't control events even in our rebellion because grace is always greater, but rebellion against God's commands in the Bible and our lives can have consequences, can't they? So coming back to Mordecai's refusal to bow down to Haman the Agagite, in keeping with the ambiguity of Esther, we're not actually told his motivation of this defiant act, that he won't bow down to Haman. Some commentators think he's carrying on a family feud for less than godly reasons. Others think he's making a godly stand. And that's the road I will go down. It's not one I'm going to die over, but I think it's the more... Um, it's the, I think it's the best version of what's happening here. I think that the reason Mordecai won't honour Haman is because he wants to please God and not man, and that his defiance is godly rebellion. For the Amalekites in the Old Testament are painted as the archetypal enemy of God's people. And I think Mordecai realises that what's happening here is part of a larger supernatural battle, a spiritual war, and he must personally draw a line in the sand. And in a small way, he's undoing the mistakes of his ancestor, Saul. But whatever his motivation, Mordecai draws attention to himself, doesn't he? His defiance is observed by others. Because it is the king's servants and not Haman who first notice Mordecai's defiance in verse 3, where we read, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. And this can happen to, to us too, can't it? In making a stand for God, whether at work, a sport or a club, where we decide what I'm being asked to do or say is against God's principles. And it's not easy, I'm not saying it is, because just like Mordecai, we can be singled out. And I'm like everyone else, I want to be liked. And to complicate the matter, often the issues, issues where Christians are forced to make a stand are issues of morality where we get labelled bigots, judgmental, ignorant. And I imagine that's the case for the, uh, our brothers and sisters Christians in Victoria, where the, gay, the ban on gay conversion laws prohibits them from counselling people of transgender or gay, of the biblical perspective of gender, and they're not even allowed to pray about it, otherwise it's a criminal offence. Now, I know it's a complex reason, and Christians have not always been loving to gay and transgender community. But it's interesting, I was telling this um, about this law to a friend, a Christian friend, and how our moderator general, the Presbyterian Church, um, Peter Barnes, has said that Presbyterian ministers in Victoria need to continue to be bold and preach the gospel, even if it defies these laws. And their re reaction was, why would he do that? Why would he bring condemnation and potentially a criminal offence down on the church? And I had to point out, well, it's a slippery slide, that if someone doesn't make a stand, it will be ongoing. And we are called to be light in the darkness. Sometimes we don't get to choose the battle or the time or place, but stand we must. Indeed, 
Jesus says in Matthew 10 that we will be hated by the world because they hate him. Tough words, aren't they? I still struggle with them. But blessed is the person who endures. Now, I think at this point you must be thinking, this is all very bleak. This is not very encouraging. We are going to delve into the how and why we might make a stand for God in the next sections. But let me encourage you now with what the Lord said to the prophet Zechariah, who had to make a stand for God. And Zechariah, sorry, the Lord said to Zechariah this, Not by strength or might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So do you feel a bit of broken pottery, a bruised reed? Oh, I do quite often in many ways. That's okay because it's not your strength to survive in the world, but God's spirit. And indeed, the story of the Bible is that God especially chooses people who are broken. He can use them far greater than people that are self-assured. So moving to the next title, number two, Haman the Vengeful. So when Haman hears of Mordecai's defiance in verses 5 to 6, he goes into a rage and plots to kill all Jews. But he bides his time. He wants an opportune time. And so there is a time gap in the story in verse 7. Uh, And the time gap is the time that Haman perceives is a good time to go to the king. He needs to craft his argument well. And he decides this time of going to the king with his plot by casting per or lots, as Ruth read to us. And they are dice. They're the equivalent of die that we might use in a board game. So he's using superstition to determine when is a good time to go to the king. We next read of Haman's pitch to exterminate the Jews in verses 8 to 9. And just as the pitch used to instigate many genocides, be it Nazi, Germany, Rwanda or Yugoslavia, the pitch about the Jews is based on some limited truths lots of half-truths and downright lies. So the Jews are described to King Xerxes as troublesome people and a threat to the empire, verse 8. Definitely not in the king's interest to tolerate them, verse 8. And Haman cleverly offers the king 10,000 talents of silver. He must have been very rich. That's probably why he got the job. Now, this this is to make up for the taxes the king will miss out on if he exterminates the Jews. So it's a very clever argument, isn't it? And with these well-crafted arguments, the king buys it. So the king agrees to Haman, Haman's plot, and the royal secretaries are summoned, verse 12. An edict is sent out. And the description of the couriers going out to all the provinces is meant to remind us of how every Jew in Persia would be affected, from India to Ethiopia. It makes us realise the terribleness of what is being done. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, Mordecai learns of the king's edict. He goes into mourning, as do many other Jews in verse 3. This is indeed a very appropriate response. King David ripped his clothing in mourning on several occasions, for example, when he heard of the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. But also the prophets mourned a rebellious Israel by doing much the same as Mordecai. But implicit with mourning, and not necessarily explicit in the text, is prayer. Indeed, biblical mourning is a special type of prayer. It's not fatalism, but it's acknowledging the dire straits of Mordecai's people and crying out to God. The Psalms are full of this type of prayer. But back to Esther 4. 
For in verse 4, Esther gives Mordecai some clothes as he can't go into the king's gate in sackcloth. That would be unseemly. So Esther sends a eunuch to find out what's troubling Mordecai in verse 5. Then in verses 6 to 8, Mordecai explains his sorrow and the king's extermination edict. And this comes with an instruction for Esther to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and to plead with him for her people. Now, Esther is very hesitant in her reply to Mordecai in verses 9 to 10, and she explains her reasons. Firstly, that you must be summoned by the king, or it's the death penalty. And when you approach the king, you can only approach him if he holds out a golden scepter to you. Indeed, this law of forbidding anyone to approach the king without a summons is attested to separately by the Greek historian Herodotus. Now, I can appreciate Esther's reticence. It's a very human response. We all get fearful at times. And as we gathered from chapters 1 and 2, Xerxes, the king, is a very erratic character. So the risk to Esther is very real. The other bona fide reason Esther gives in the last part of verse 11 is that but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king, meaning that she has gone down the ladder of who the king desires in the harem. Now, it's not a good situation. Haman, the plotter, has regular access to king, but Esther, the vulnerable Jew, who's now a queen, doesn't. And yet, despite these fears, as we'll discover in our next heading, Esther becomes an important mediator for her people. So we go to our final section, Esther the mediator. So how does Mordecai respond to Esther's hesitancy to go to the king and plead for survival of the Jews? Well, in a very blunt manner, doesn't he? For in verses 13 to 14 of chapter 4, we read this. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family will perish. And who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? Mordecai gives three reasons in verse 14 to motivate Esther. And these, to me, seem to occur in a pattern. The first one's an admonishment, a bit of a whack, if you like. The second's a blessing. And the third reason's a combination of both. It's an admonishment and a blessing. So, the first reason of why she should go to the king, the admonishment, if you like. In Mordecai's thinking, Esther's life may be in jeopardy if she goes to the king uninvited, but her doom is certain if she doesn't, because she will indeed be found out as a Jew sooner or later. The second reason, the blessing of her task, is this. Mordecai suggests that she could be the vehicle of a great deliverance for her people. So he states, And who knows that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this? Mordecai points out that all the previous circumstances in Esther's life have led her to the Persian throne. And have just been for this moment when she can intercede for her people. And finally, the third reason, the combined admonishment blessing, where Mordecai states that if she doesn't stand up for her people, then God will get someone else. 
In verse 14, he says this, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. So he's telling us, if you don't help us, then God may well bring salvation from another place, and you will have missed out on playing a great role for God. And this is perhaps the greatest hint of Mordecai's hint, belief in divine providence, that God is working behind the scenes, as it were. It's perhaps his greatest expression of faith in God. Now, I think Mordecai knows the providence of God because it's based on firm promises. So going way, way back in the Old Testament again to the book of Genesis, God makes a covenant, a contract, a special bond with the Israelites. And the, Christ- and the book of Hebrews that we read and was preached to us last year tells us that Jesus has the same bond with us now. We inherited all those great promises to Israel. In any case, Mordecai's reply to Esther seems to have the desired effect. <clears throat> Excuse me. For in verse 16, she sends back a message. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, and even though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. Esther's response is slimmer to Mordecai in that it's about prayer. But here, the emphasis is on communal prayer, i.e. it takes place in the context with other believers, verse 16, that we pray for and are in turn prayed for. And Esther's about to go on a dangerous mission, isn't she? She needs all the prayer of others she can get. And are we not also on a dangerous mission in this world, living for the Lord in a dangerous and hostile world that is often very anti-God. So the question becomes, how much do we pray? How much do we use the church's prayer diary? How much do we pray for those in our Bible study? Don't worry, I'm preaching to myself in this issue. And I'm reminded of that great hymn writer, Joseph Scriven. No relation, but I will claim him. (laughs) That are so relevant for us. For in the hymn, What a Friend We Have with Jesus, and you probably all know this, I think it's the third stanza, he writes, Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, I looked up the biography of Joseph Scriven. From memory, he wrote this when he lost his second or third wife in childbirth. He was a missionary to Canada from England in about mid-18th century. And he's writing this after that terrible experience. But obviously he's someone who understands prayer and has had prayers answered. Last week I told you about a a fellow named Wilbur. He was a miner from Broken Hill and when Kate and I were first married we attended Wilbur's church and I said he was a great influencer on my life and he was. Well, let me tell you about another, Uh, his mother, his mum. Um, Wilbur's mum was a remarkable lady. She was a missionary to China in the 1930s. In fact, she worked with Eric Liddell Uh, Welsh Olympic runner, uh, made famous in that movie, Chariots of Fire, and I think he won his gold medal, was it the 1919 or 1921 Olympics in Paris? One of those. However, having done that, he went to the mission field and sadly died in a Japanese concentration camp in China during the Second World War. Mind you, he was still ministering to other people up to the time of his death. 
And that part of Wilbur's mum's life was remarkable. What was remarkable to, to me was that she was a prayer warrior. So that when Wilbur told me I was on her prayer list, it was like getting a thousand Christmases at once. Because I knew how faithful she was in prayer. Every morning she had this long list of people that she would sit in a chair and just pray for. Now, I'm not saying everyone can do this. I have the concentration span of an ant, and I definitely can't do this. But prayer is such an important part of how we stand and survive in a hostile world for God, isn't it? And we miss out when we don't pray for ourselves and each other. For Esther, it's with those prayers that she will go to the king as a mediator for her people, with the attitude, if I perish, I perish, verse 16. And again, this is not fatalism. This is someone putting herself into God's hands, knowing that her case and her people's case has been made to God. It's a position of trust that God is king and will bring about her pur- his purposes, whatever her personal fate It's trusting and knowing that she was put in the palace for a time such as this, as are you in the world. Let's close by reflecting on Jesus, the mediator. I didn't mention it at the time, but did you notice back in chapter 3 at the end of verse 7 where Haman throws his dice? Remember, he's trying to determine which is the best month. He needs to go to the king to implement his plan of genocide against the Jews. Did you notice which month his dice told him to go to the king? It was the Persian month of Adar, which is really about now. It's sort of March, April. But for Jews, it was very important because it's when they celebrated what they called the Passover. Now, I imagine many of you know what the Passover is, but I'll briefly describe it because, again, way back in Exodus, when God punishes Pharaoh and the Egyptians to free his people from slavery. How did God affect that? How did God set his people free from the Egyptians? Well, it's in the name of Passover. For the Israelites were to sacrifice a lamb and paint the blood of the lamb on their doors, so that when the angel of death came, sent by God, the angel of death would pass over the houses of the Israelites and only afflict the Egyptians so that the firstborn of all the Egyptians died and Pharaoh let them go. As Christians, we can celebrate Passover with even greater significance. For at Easter, God's own son is sacrificed, isn't he? As a Passover lamb for us. So that we escape death and eternal punishment so that we're no longer enemies of God. And instead of getting what we deserve, by grace, we get what we don't deserve. We're given peace with God, eternal life, God's spirit here on earth. And we will meet Jesus soon, won't we? To have paradise. But also we made his dear disciples. Remember how Esther mentioned in verse 11 of chapter 4 that she could only go to see King Xerxes, the Persian king, if he extended his golden scepter to her. That's what Jesus does for us. He extends that golden scepter to us that we become friends of God, that we are much loved by God. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb, because Jesus is the great mediator. Esther may have been a reluctant mediator, but Jesus isn't. Remember how Ryan and John preached to us through Matthew's 
gospel, one of Jesus' constant refrains that the disciples didn't get was that I go to the cross and nothing's going to distract me from that. No one made Jesus go to the cross. He went freely because he loves us. For Jesus is the king but also our mediator and he's nothing like the despot and erratic ruler that is King Xerxes. Jesus lovingly makes a stand for you and me on the cross. His love for you is absolutely rock solid. He gives us the power to stand firm in him through his spirit because he is really only the thing to stand for, the only person to stand for in this world. Let's pray. Lord God, in a sense we live in dangerous and difficult times in a hostile world, but we are so encouraged by the book of Esther that we are not alone in that struggle, that others have gone before us. We are especially thankful that we have a mediator king who loves us so much that at this time of Easter we think and celebrate him as the Passover lamb, that throughout with we are totally lost, but now we are your people, we are your disciples. Amen.